is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, it was a wild and loud L.A. City Council meeting. Activists packing the council chambers today as outrage grows by the minute over those racial remarks made by former council president Noreen Martinez Martinez in a secret recording. She's now taking a leave of absence, but her two council colleagues who were there when Martinez made these comments were at the meeting, Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo. We go in depth into the fallout and the calls from all sides for all three to resign immediately. We'll also go to western Ukraine, where Russia's fired missiles to try to knock out critical infrastructure. We'll look into how people there are holding up. The Supreme Court decides to take a pass on deciding a case that deals with constitutional rights of fetuses. NASA says, DART, it worked, it moved the asteroids. So uh, we've got a chance if a big rock is coming our way. And we'll take a look back at the life of legendary actress Angela Lansbury, who died today at the age of 96. We start, though, with the uh, city council meeting inside council chambers right now. Just KNX reporter Emily Valdez. Emily, uh, give us a quick update on what happened earlier when things were really kind of breaking down into a very chaotic situation. Well, um, the meeting just adjourned, by the way. I'm not sure if you know that. Uh, I, and they actually got through city business, which I, was shocking. Um, so uh, when it was breaking down was when it started at 10 a.m. It was pretty much a packed house. Uh, the crowd was going crazy. They were saying they weren't going to let the city council members do any official business until Nuri Martinez, Gil Cedillo, and council members uh, Kevin DeLeon had resigned. When Councilmember Cedillo and De Leon showed up, uh, there was chanting, De Leon, afuera, afuera, Cedillo, afuera, which means out in Spanish, and then leave, leave. I mean, they were just going crazy, and you couldn't hear anything else. All you heard was chanting, and Cedillo and De Leon looked uh, defeated, I guess would be a good word, just not, not their best day on the city council and Cedillo got up and walked out first. There was a round of applause and uh, De Leon followed. Did they ever come back in or was that, was that it for them for, for the duration? That was it. Oh no, they were gone. They were gone. Um, there was no way there was so much public pressure on them to leave. It was, if they, if they didn't leave, and, you know, other council members were going up and talking to them too. Uh, Mitchell Farrell went up and talked to them. Other, I'm, so I couldn't really see who, but there was other council members going up and talking to them. I think, I don't know what they're saying, but I mean, it was, they kind of had to leave, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't going well. It was going to go bad. You said that, so, you, you said, Emily, that they finished their business. What kind of business, I'm curious, did they end up doing after all this? You know, the regular the regular business of a city council, uh, approving the zoning and items, you know, 12 through 24. So and, they went through business as usual. Yeah, they actually did. So what happened is after that, um, it, it was kind of crazy the whole time until when, when things calmed down, because you couldn't get a word in edgewise, until the public speakers, one by one, were coming up and everybody got a chance to vent and say their piece. Okay. Then things, the energy started calming down. Um, and at the end, Mitchell Farrell, who's the interim or the acting council president, said next week they're going to vote for a new council president because he doesn't want the job. 
Oh, it was also when Bonin spoke. You could hear a pin drop, too. That was the only other time. Yeah, that was at the be- the beginning of this. There is this measure to censure the three, which is basically what all, all they can do. They, they can't kick them out, but they, but they can do. censure them. Right, which is kind of like a slap on the hand, to be honest. It doesn't really have any weight. Um, but and it says in the motion that the city council is very limited. They can't vote out another member um, under the city charter. And that's pretty much, you know, really in all local government, it's kind of across the board. Um, and that's up to the public to do. So the public has to do a recall or, you know, um, they have to resign because the public put them there. So other elected officials cannot get other elected officials out. Emily, do we know when the next meeting is? Yeah, it's uh, it's next Tuesday. It's next Tuesday. But, I mean, they've got committee meetings going on all throughout the week. So there will be other committee meetings uh, going on all throughout the week. But, yeah, I mean, at the end, they went through their business uh, – Mitch O'Farrell made a speech and and people started leaving and I just was shocked they got through the business. Um, it, it will be interesting to see uh, if, if Cedillo and DeLeon show up to any of the little committee meetings or what happens. KNX reporter Emily Valdez there from L.A. City Hall was at this uh, council meeting today. Nothing like we've ever seen before. We continue our discussion on those secretly recorded racial comments by uh, L.A. City Councilwoman Nori Martinez. With us now is L.A. City Attorney Mike Fuhrer, who is himself, of course, a former L.A. Councilman. Thanks for being with us. Uh, As we just said, I mean, you used to serve in the city council. Uh, Anything like this, even remotely like this, in your time of serving? No. Uh, and, And by the way, let me just start by saying, Charles and Mike, great job moderating the moral debate the other day. Um, well, thank you. And yeah, glad you're, you're focused on this issue. I have never seen anything like this in Los Angeles from elected officials. This hateful speech is disgusting. It's appalling. And the reaction that we're seeing from throughout the city is displaying a level of outrage at council members' comments that I, I have not seen. And I actually want to say, I was thinking as um, the, I was listening to the lead-in to this interview, there is an interesting, I'm seeing today, kind of positive side to this horrific, horrific speech. And that is, you can see people of all racial, ethnic, class, and religious backgrounds, every sexual orientation, you know, sexual orientation uh, is not an issue, uh, nothing. Everybody is coming together to say one thing that racist and homophobic comments from public officials are absolutely beyond the pale, out of line. And this is why so many of us have called for the resignation of these council members. Um, I'm hopeful that what emerges from this moment is a deeper sense of what can bring us together, recognizing how much we need to marginalize comments like these that I, I, I just think are utterly beyond the pale are horrific and ought to be roundly condemned, but condemnation is not enough. You know, I issued a statement uh, along with others on, on Sunday condemning those horrific words. What do you think but, it is that they haven't resigned, though, yet? Because I'm curious about this. I mean, yeah. we get calls for people to, to step down for all sorts of different reasons. But here we have, I don't know, basically everybody in the political establishment, even the parties themselves, the state party, the local party, 
uh, we have protesters calling for the resignation, yet they're still hanging on. And and Nuri Martinez is saying, I'm going to take a leave of absence and talk to my family. I mean, can the council function with these three on it still? I think it's going to be extremely challenging for these three members to have the credibility and the authority they need. And I think they should resign. And I said so very clearly yesterday, because they should be putting what is best for the city above what's best for them. That is the epitome of what public service is. You say, I'm going to be in office, not just to be in office, but to serve. And at this moment, these members are, I think, incapable of serving in a way that contributes to the public good. They have forfeited the privilege of public service, on my view. Mike, let, let, let me also get you to, to touch on this other sort of part of the story, because and, and we've been talking about this since this began the past day or so, because there are two different stories here, really, although they're connected. There is the story of these horrendous comments, uh, which uh, you're correct, should never have been made and and uh, should be widely and is being widely condemned. But I also don't want to have get lost that the setting for all these comments was a sort of secret meeting right behind closed doors talking about redistricting to maintain a certain power base for certain constituents and certain political leaders. And that's something, too, that needs to be rectified, does it not? Yes. And Charles, I'm so glad you raised that. You might remember more than a year ago, I proposed that we have a fully independent redistricting commission. Why did I say that? Because of precisely what we see, backroom deals, politicians who have a stake in what the districts look like, having a role in deciding what they look like. Uh, that shouldn't be. There's actually a motion pending in the city council tomorrow, which I strongly support to finally take up what I've been advocating, and that is a charter change that would allow for a fully independent process. Um, there's just, on my view, no good reason why public officials who, whose political lives could be contingent on how the districts are drawn should have the final say as to how those lines are drawn. Um, so I hope this changes right away. I've been calling for it for a long time. I'm optimistic that things will move forward now. This horrible incident may be the catalyst for that to happen. L.A. City Attorney Mike Feuer, himself a former L.A. councilman, you know, you go through that tape and there's the part where the, they go, oh, you know, that commission, they went rogue. You know, yeah. well, they didn't go rogue. That was their job. That's right. They didn't have to check with you. African-American community leaders, activists joined by many Latino civic leaders and calling for the three council people on that tape to resign. Miguel Santana, former L.A. City Administrative Officer, President and CEO of the Weingart Foundation, co-signed an open letter calling for the immediate resignations. Miguel, thanks for being with us. We were just talking to Mike Fuhrer about this. I mean, it's been a long time, if ever, that we have seen this kind of backlash and people saying, you know, what? get out of here. We don't want you on the council anymore and have these three still sticking to the job. That's right. It's it's really a, a very sad moment for Los Angeles and and it's but it's also clear that the community, the diverse community that Los Angeles is, is really speaking with one voice at this time, um condemning the comments, the dialogue, uh condemning the the idea that Policy as something as as important as redistricting would be informed by racist thoughts and actions, and asking that the only way to move forward and begin 
the healing process and the process of reconciliation if these three council members who I personally know and worked with on many issues do the honorable thing and step down. You know, uh, since you mentioned that you worked with them and, and knew them well, how shocked were you when you found out what sort of thoughts they clearly harbored and didn't have any issues about saying out loud? Very shocked and very disappointed. Um, you know, the, Gil Cedillo has fought for immigrant rights his entire career as a legislator, Um Council uh, President Nuri Martinez, or former Council President now, is has fought for working families, um, and and Councilman De Leon um, is known for his leadership on climate change as of when he served in the state Senate, and um, and so it's very shocking when you hear folks who have been engaged in these issues in leadership roles. Um, who have fought alongside communities to really, in their most private moments, have um, such hate-filled language against uh, the Black community, the Indigenous community, the LBGT community, the Jewish community. Um, and it, it was really um, shocking and hearing in their own voice and um, and very disappointing. And and it's why, uh, as Latino leaders, as in the civic community, joined with with people like Antonia Hernandez, uh, president of the California Community Foundation and former president of the Mexican American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Arturo Vargas, who's the president of the National Association of Latino Elected Officials, um, Manuel Pastor and Fernando Guerra and Gary Segura, all academics who have studied Latino politics their entire careers. It is particularly important that we, uh, within our own community, um, make it very clear where we stand and have a very direct statement against these, these vile comments. But more importantly, to say, we are asking you, as people who know you, who have worked with you, we're asking you that this is a time for you to step down and allow the city to move forward. Do you think there's a huge hit to trust here for, for the public? I mean, that's why it's taking such a long time for a lot of people to digest this, because we get into this us versus them. And on the tape, it seems like, well, if you can't benefit me directly, then not only you're not with me, like you're against me. And from the outside looking in, that's what that's what people don't like, that power grab that gets people into trouble. Absolutely. And, and you know, the issue of redistricting needs to be dealt with. I mean, it's it's hard for human beings to think about something against their own self-interest. And so it is why there really needs to be an independent, truly independent commission that decides what the district boundaries are that doesn't consider the, the opinions or the impacts on those currently in power. This has been a a problem in in throughout this country for many many years for decades and and I think folks are starting to realize that the only way to do this in a fair manner to have non uh partisan uh citizens who uh are from the community uh take this issue and design lines that best reflect the diversity of the city and um 
And so that really needs to be the next step. But it's hard to do that. It's hard to think about the next step, hard to think about what are the next, what's on the to-do list when we're still living out the the anger, uh, appropriate anger uh, towards the comments. And so it is so important that um, council members uh, really do the right thing, the honorable thing, and resign so that we could begin that process. Miguel Santana, former L.A. City Administrative Officer, President and CEO of the Weingart Foundation. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia's escalated its uh, attacks in Ukraine, hitting areas that previously were relatively quiet. Missile hit the power supply in the city of Lviv in western Ukraine. Now, that left part of the city without power. The attacks came after an explosion on a key bridge in the Crimea region. With us now is Maxim. He lives in Lviv. Maxim, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Uh, What exactly uh, are the conditions now in the city that you're in, which we should mention to uh, our listeners, is in the, of course, western part of Ukraine, not far from the Polish border. Do you have water? Do you have electricity? What? Hi, thanks for having me. So the situation in Lviv and in the region uh, is uh, more or less stabilized. We uh, still have power outages uh, in certain regions of the city um, because mostly the strikes uh, tried to hit uh, the the energy infrastructure. Uh, And so uh, yesterday, for example, I spent... uh, whole day in 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 a blackout basically uh just fm radio worked i think no cellular connection or internet or basically uh electricity um which uh kind of reminded uh the the days of the start of the full invasion in a way um but uh, since then our uh, um, local services working really really hard and uh, rarely get a shout out, but they uh, totally um, are entitled for it. So um, still had an outage today, but a more shorter one. And um, overall, people are trying to use electricity wisely, not to use uh, too much of uh, uh, devices and uh, yeah, trying to get the electricity grid back to to working state. Yeah, when when you talk to people and 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 how you feel about it too. I mean, was it a pretty big shock after uh, we mentioned a relatively peaceful quiet, especially given how how far west Lviv is? But to have this happening again and and kind of thinking back to to how things were in, in February. Oh, I wish I could say so, but uh, me being or originally from Kharkiv, I. Uh, constantly see news about uh, hits on our cities and um, even though Lviv is more western part and it's kind of more remote from from the front line um, it, it just reminds you that uh, um, those uh, air sirens are not um, you know for training their the tactical ones there should be um, people should be um, taking care of themselves accordingly because uh, the strikes on the in the center of Kiev just uh, reminds us that um, occupants uh, just a terrorist state that try to um, basically target civilians and uh, we, we we should protect ourselves. Is it possible for people in your city now in Lviv to even have 
anything that resembles a kind of normal life, if it's possible to have such a thing in the middle of a war? Uh, what helps me is uniting with uh, with my pals and friends around here in Lviv and uh, um, helping the cause, volunteering um, and uh, gathering some money for our friends on the front lines. And it kind of both keeps up the moral and uh, reminds you that um, um, if everybody does this thing and the right thing, we will be um, closer to, to, to the victory. Um, and... Um, yeah, just um, this is a kind of a reality that we are trying to get used to and uh, weird uh, to get used to uh, your neighbors and uh, um, your your friends being killed uh, by occupants. But uh, and we should not, you know, get used to it. But uh, in a way, after eight or seven months, it's kind of uh, hard not to. Do you still feel that? That the rest of the world is is paying attention to what's happening there. Or do you think, or do you fear that 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 will wane as time goes on? I definitely feel that as time goes on, there is uh, less attention to to the war, and um, it uh, is uh, understandable. But um, it's just, um, um, I think, uh, the attacks that happen in. Um, recently on Zaporizhia on Kiev, they remind that, um, you know, uh, there is a true evil that should be uh, fought against uh, in the world. And, uh, you know, if, if there is a really important thing in, thing in the world, uh, this, is, this is the one. And I hope that uh, it, uh, this situation just um, helps uh, more states understand that we really need um, air defense system to protect our people and uh, um, yeah, to, to, to be able to live uh, a normal life, as you said. That's Maxim there. He lives in Lviv. Maxim, thanks for talking to us. After knocking down Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court was asked to decide on a case about the constitutional rights of fetuses. But the court basically punted, turned away an appeal by a Catholic group and two women from Rhode Island. With us now is Mary Ziegler, professor specializing in reproductive rights law at UC Davis School of Law, author of the book Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. Professor, thanks for being with us. So tell us about this case. And is this now a case of the Supreme Court not as being as conservative as we thought? Or was this a Hail Mary that was never going to get there anyways? I mean, this is really, I think, mostly a question of timing. Um, we know that uh, the anti-abortion movement in general is a personhood movement, right? The goal of the movement since the 60s has been recognition of a fetus as a rights-holding person, which would make abortion um, illegal everywhere, right? Not just in states that want to ban it. Um, but we, we had a pretty good sense that this wasn't going to work because Brett Kavanaugh, who's the probably casting the deciding vote on many of these cases, telegraphed this June that he thought the Constitution, in his words, was scrupulously neutral. So I, I don't think the court saying no now means that the anti-abortion movement will think that this is a no forever. But going back to the court this quickly was probably never going to work. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, if was this just a question of the wrong case at the wrong time? And if the so-called right case comes along at the right time, the court may have a very different uh, finding with it, or at least may handle it differently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you had come to the court in 2020 and said, let's overrule Roe v. Wade right now, 
you would have received a similar response to these petitioners from Rhode Island today, right? But then, of course, fast forward two years, the Overton window has shifted. Who's on the court has changed. Their attitudes have changed. That's certainly true of Brett Kavanaugh's attitude. So I think we'd be looking at, you know, years, not months down the road when attitudes would have changed. But I don't think we can rule that out. So, yeah, is this a now an idea of wait a lot longer, which we know that they played the long game with Roe anyways, so that's not out of the question, or maneuver in a way that you can find Kavanaugh to be open to? You find an argument, you find a case where he goes, well, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's telling that the people behind this suit are not power players in the anti-abortion movement. They clearly didn't think it was time. So I think it's it's a function of both not having laid the groundwork in terms of convincing the court that there's a groundswell of support for this on the right, and, you know, just not making the best arguments you can because you don't you haven't tapped into the best talent on that side of the issue to make your claim. Now, the, the Supreme Court, notwithstanding so many more states now, I'm thinking in particular of Georgia, but there are many more sort of right leaning, Republican leaning states that are either passing or trying to pass laws that are in effect about uh, fetus personhood. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and that's why I think we can't rule this out for the future, because the court in Dobbs, of course, emphasized that lots of conservative states were trying to take down Roe and suggesting that Roe was unsettled. And so the more states we see follow Georgia's lead in recognizing personhood, the better an argument that may look to the court. Um, Of course, you know, States are in a lot of uncertainty right now in conservative areas about what to do exactly about abortion, how far to go, what to say about personhood. And I think it'll take some time to sort that out. But this is definitely not the last we've seen of arguments for personhood at the court. Yeah, when we talk about that, what are the the complications that it eventually leads to? You mentioned if, if fetal personhood is a thing, well, there's your abortion ban. But are we also going into areas of uh, in vitro or are we going into areas of contraception? Yeah, we don't know, right? I mean, because for a long time, folks in the anti-abortion movement all agreed that the goal was personhood, but they didn't really flesh out what they meant by personhood. And so there were... You know, people who thought it meant, for example, you'd have to criminally punish women because that would be the only way to treat a fetus equally. There are people who thought it would mean you'd have to ban chemical contraceptives, including the birth control pill. There are people who disagreed with all of that, right? There are people saying it would mean you need to pay child support to people while they're pregnant. And so I don't think we really know. And I think the answers may vary from state to state. They may not even be spelled out and left in the hands of individual prosecutors or members of law enforcement. I'm just wondering, sort of a more philosophical uh, thought here, do you think that we'll ever get to a point in this country, and what would that point be, and how would it even come about, where this abortion issue can be resolved to, if not everybody's, at least most people's satisfaction? Because it seems otherwise that this is, is doomed to endless endless fighting back and forth. Yeah, I mean, it's not something to most people's satisfaction. One thing that's clearly true is that a lot of policy historically, uh, especially in conservative states, but to some degree in progressive states too, has been tailored to not address what most voters want, but to address what the voters who care the most about the issue want. And so I think one promising 
idea would be to just take the abortion issue directly to voters instead of saying, okay, you elect the politician and then the politician will decide. Because that politician may be catering to the interest group that gives them the most money or cares the most, not to the median voter. And we've seen, um, we're seeing this happening in California. We saw it happening in Kansas. You know, and I, we haven't perfected that technique yet, but it may be that if we actually let voters decide and didn't require them to just kind of go through partisan politics, that then whatever policy is adopted by those voters would at least be satisfactory to them, even if not to everyone in that state. But, uh, you know, I think that's probably the closest we could get. We know from polling that there's a majority of Americans who believe abortion is a right and shouldn't be criminally banned, but have more uh, acceptance of restrictions the later in pregnancy you go. So maybe there's something like a national consensus for that, but it's hard for me to imagine that ever being put in place. Mary Ziegler, professor specializing in reproductive rights law, UC Davis School of Law, the book Dollars for Life, the anti-abortion movement, and the fall of the Republican establishment. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. A lot of people mourning the death of actress Angela Lansbury. Family says she died today at 96 years old, just a couple days short of her 97th birthday. Lansbury is best known to many people for her role as Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote. Her talents, though, stretched from television to movies to Broadway, where she won five Tony Awards and really made her mark as a performer. With us now is Jason Squire, Professor Emeritus at the USC School of Cinematic Arts and editor of the Movie Business Book. Thanks for being with us. So here's somebody who, depending upon, I suppose, how old you are and and what particular decade uh, you first discovered Angela Lansbury, she was either a star of uh, the Broadway stage or movies or television, right? Isn't it amazing? How many performers uh, have the range, the depth, the longevity? And, of course, uh, she was extraordinary to begin with. Uh, Really one of the greatest, most versatile entertainers over 80 years of the business. This is uh, quite remarkable. And as you say, loved by four generations. Um, You know, listening to Mrs. Potts uh, really gives you a lump in your throat. And that was simply for the, uh, you know, the audiences uh, 30 years ago. But, of course, Disney's Beauty and the Beast animated version lives forever uh, on Disney+, which is, of course, a good thing. But then you go further back, and as you say, touched many generations in all media, especially the Tony Awards on the stage. Really remarkable work in Maine, 1966. Dear World, 69. Gypsy, 75. And she was the original Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd on Broadway in 1979. Won a Tony for all of these shows, including Blythe Spirit, including a Lifetime Achievement Award just this very year. You know... Uh, it's, it's funny because you were saying, you know, Mrs. Potts, and so many people are talking about murder she wrote too. And we're going to move into the, the TV sphere here, and and I, I'm sitting here the whole the whole day going, oh no, Mrs. Potts, like <laughs> my favorite animated teacup was so comforting. But but we have to talk about murder she wrote, right? Because it it was one of like the most successful shows on TV, and and she said, you know, I had no idea that this was going to go all around the world, but now every country I go to, someone's like, oh, I used to watch that show. That's the power of television. 
created by Richard Levinson and William Link at Universal for what it is 12 years. I mean, we all know Jessica Fletcher. And it's very solid. And of course, we can, we can follow the work today uh, online. It's just, as you say, a great influence and a great impact. And the other amazing thing about Angela Lansbury is that her career started, so she was discovered, she was from England, she was discovered in the United States around 1942 and signed by MGM. So she was in the original Gaslight in 1944. Yeah, I was going. I was going to say. I was going to say that that so many people who now use the phrase, you know, about being gaslit, she was actually in the original movie Gaslight. So now everybody has to go see Gaslit, Gaslight, which is uh, rotates on Turner Classic Movies every now and then. Take a look, uh, see the original Gaslight, and understand the phrase. It, it's There's funny, also, you know, you know it's, it's just, Dorian Gray. And yeah. What about Manchurian Candidate? Yeah, I was just going to say, right? Because there's so many of these. Sinatra's nemesis. There's so many of these older movies that, that people, I think, after she moved into TV, they kind of forgot. And now they're, today we're all going, oh, well, she's had like three separate careers. She was everywhere. Amazing, isn't it? And this is also to recommend the Sinatra version of Manchurian Candidate in 1962, if you haven't seen it. She's amazing in the movie. She's the, the worst possible villain. Just dreadful. Why is it, do you think, and, and maybe this is unfair to a lot of contemporary performers, but it does seem when somebody like an Angela Lansbury dies, you kind of think, how come they don't make them like that anymore? Do they make them like that anymore? And why not? It's a very good question. I think the range and the extended details of the industry has had an impact on that, where people may move from a successful uh, feature career and go into television, they go back and forth, uh, streaming uh, efforts also. So that's pretty well set. But it is rare for a movie star, uh, a television star, to do Broadway. Well, also the economics of Broadway have changed considerably. While they would do... Uh, traveling versions, um, as Angela Lansbury did when she would bring a, uh, a project to the West Coast that she originated on Broadway. Uh, that certainly happens, but the economics, I think, are a factor here. It's, uh, Broadway is a very tough, tough environment these days, extremely expensive to put on a show. Jason Squire, Professor Emeritus, Professor Emeritus at USC's School of Cinematic Arts, editor of the Movie Business Book. Somebody on YouTube posted uh, Lincoln Center in 2016. So that was like the 25th anniversary of Beauty yeah. and the Beast. Yeah. She went out there and sang the song at age 90 or 91, and it still sounds exactly like it did, you know, uh, 25 years before. Are you ever going to be able to look at a teacup again? No, that's Mrs. Potts. Yeah. And Chip. The little guy oh, yeah, the little, kid, the, the, the little chip. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to address this to any asteroid that's out there in space that's thinking of taking on the Earth. Come on. You just, we dare you. Be just, warned. Yeah, just come on, because we're ready for you now. We, we can deal with you. Yeah, the NASA scientists can, uh, can knock them off path. The DART spacecraft had smashed into a distant asteroid successfully. We didn't know right away whether it changed the uh, trajectory, but now we do. We're going to get to Tarek Daly, a Draco Deputy Instrument Scientist for the DART mission. Also, planetary scientist at Johns Hopkins, the Applied Physics Lab. But first, uh, Charles, I told you to type into Google NASA DART. Yeah, right? did, did that. All right, click, click uh, search. Okay. And wait and watch and see what happens there. 
Okay. Uh, you see oh, it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, it, it, it blew it up. <laughs> it blew it up. A little spacecraft. The I dart like flies across the screen. Yeah, and then it blows the it up. Hits the picture of the asteroid. And now look at your screen. It's yeah. tilted. Yeah, off it is. Of course. Because it's changed the orbit. Yes, just like the real one did. So, uh, Tarek, let's go to you. We, uh, we, we saw this and we all watched it, right? Online, because the thing had a camera on it. Uh, and now we figured out that, that yeah, it, it actually worked. That's absolutely right. So we had, you know, the kind of nail biting moments as we're leading up to impact as we see the asteroid fill the field of view of the camera. And now about two weeks later, we have confirmation from telescopes on the ground that the DART mission did, in fact, change the path of this asteroid Dimorphos through space and actually changed it towards the upper end of what we thought would happen, which was really exciting to see. Now, of course, we should point out that this asteroid was never actually a threat to the Earth. This was kind of a proof of concept uh, exercise, right? Um, yep. How confident are we? As you heard me before, I I was tempting the gods by by daring a giant asteroid yeah, we to spot one now <laughs> to come toward <laughs> us. Uh, how confident are you that that on the the really big ones that might someday pose a challenge that this is going to work? Well, when we talk about really big asteroids, like dinosaur-killing asteroids, uh, we're not actually very concerned about those because we know where those really big ones are. The kinds of asteroids we're concerned about are the ones actually around the size of this asteroid Dimorphos, about the size of, say, a large pyramid, because we don't know where most of those are, and they're large enough to cause devastation over a region or a small country. And the fact that DART worked uh, and, sh and shoved this asteroid Dimorphos, changed its course through space, I think that actually gives us a lot of confidence that we have a technology that is ready to use should the need come uh, one day. And that, I think, should give people a lot of confidence. Is that kind of a strange thought process, though? I mean, we know where the big ones are because we have been like looking for them. But these medium-sized ones, they can still sneak up on us. And is that just because, I don't know, space is so big? Well, they can, you're right, they can sneak up on us at this point because we only know where about 40% of them are. Um, they're hard to find. They're small. They're far from the Earth. And NASA is, in fact, looking for them. They have a number of telescopes that are uh, out there surveying. And actually, NASA is looking at a mission after DART for planetary defense that would be dedicated to finding these asteroids uh, that come near us. And I think that would be a great follow-on uh, to DART is to actually find these asteroids. Because if we don't know where they are, uh, even if we have technology ready, we actually can't stop them if they take us by surprise. So uh, how excited is everybody where you are? Oh, where I'm at, you know, we've been having meetings almost every day since the uh, DART impact happened, sharing the latest results from telescopes around the world with this big international team. And the excitement is just through the roof in those meetings as people's minds are being blown as the new data rolls in. And it's a really exciting time, I think, for everybody involved in the project. Did you have any doubt that, that we were going to smack into it? I mean, because you said, you know, not only did we hit the thing, which we know, but the way we changed the orbit was actually like the upper levels of what you hope to do. So we didn't just shift it a little bit like like we did a great job or you did a great job. I didn't do a thing. I just sat here. Well, hey, the spacecraft did it for us. But yes, we, we changed the orbit period of this asteroid by 32 minutes, plus or minus two minutes. Um, and that really is is quite the shove. It looks like the asteroid actually gave us a hand. A telescopes on the ground observed 
that the BITMO system brightened significantly after impact, which we've interpreted as ejecta material being launched off the surface of the asteroid by the impact. And that kind of gives you an extra bit of a push um, from that material flying off the surface. And so over the coming weeks, people will be looking at that data in a lot of detail to understand exactly how much of additional push we got from the ejecta flying off the asteroid surface following DART's impact. You know, I have a, a neighbor who parks his van in a way that I can't see it when I pull out of my garage. Do you have like a spare rocket they can blow that away? It's a tiny one. Yeah, it's a tiny <laughs> It's a small one. That's all I ask. You know, I think I'm fresh out, but maybe you know somebody who does. <laughs> we'll, we'll workshop yeah. that one later on. Um, if they're big, like what if a big one comes, a dinosaur killer, and it's coming for us and not the dinosaurs? What do we do for that one? Because everyone goes, oh, we'll nuke the thing. But like, that seems problematic. <laughs> you know, there are nuclear deflection or disruption is one of the techniques that is talked about. What it really boils down to actually is time. If we have, say, years or decades of warning that an asteroid's coming our way and and the technology we have can predict these things once we find them with that kind of accuracy. If we have decades of time, we have the technology to be able to shift that asteroid's course. If we have just a couple of weeks of time, for example, then we really don't have many good options. And that's why it's so important to find these asteroids and to find them early. Um, because once we have found them and we understand their orbits, we can then prepare accordingly if one is coming our way. The more time we have, the more options we have. I mean, you know, in the movies, it's always like, oh, you got a week. Uh, it's not going to ever be that short, is it? Well, back in 2013, uh, there was an asteroid about the size of a bus that actually exploded in the atmosphere over Chelyabinsk, Russia, and it wasn't detected until it happened. Okay, so th that's not good. <laughs> that's bad news. <laughs> well, we wish everyone well in finding the asteroids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we want to find them. That's right. Okay. Derek Daly, Draco, Deputy Instrument Scientist for the DART mission. And uh, type NASA Dart into Google and watch the little uh, cartoon guy go there and hit the asteroid. And then see what happens. Mm -hmm. All right. That's in I feel for sorry today. for the dinosaurs now because if only they mm -hmm. had this, they'd still be here. Yes, if and, only they had a space program. And they'd be doing this show. Yes. They wouldn't fit in the studio, but they would be well, doing this. Long neck show. would be poking right through the ceiling. <laughs> All right. More tomorrow.